in the long and honored history of America. There are those who paid the last, the final price, who were called upon by chance or desperate circumstance to make the ultimate sacrifice. And welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N. SON.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice searching for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. And this Memorial Day, we've put together a couple of really important shows. We've, we've grabbed these uh, shows from our America's Veterans Story show. And uh, hour one, we're going to be talking with Marty Letelier. And he is a Marine veteran. He was at the very tough battle at Chosen Reservoir in the Korean War. And so it's going to be a really fascinating story, and we thought that was really appropriate for uh, Memorial Day. And then in Hour 2, we'll be uh, playing the encore of an interview that we did with Lou Zogby. And he was uh, at uh, the World War II Battle of the Bulge. And we just thought that for Memorial Day that this would be something that would be really important. So I hope that you enjoy uh, these both of these shows because they're so important. And I wish all of you a very blessed Memorial Day. I am so excited to have on the line with me Marine veteran Marty uh, Letelier, and he fought in the Korean War. And the Korean War is many times referred to as the Forgotten War, uh, and uh, but it, it should not be forgotten at all. Uh, but it was fought uh, just a few years after World War II. And Marty uh, Letelier, welcome to the show. Oh, okay, thank you. It's great to have you. Let's uh, talk a little bit now. I had the great honor to interview you a few years ago, and so I'm very excited again uh, to interview you because you participated in a, a very important battle in uh, Korea. In fact, in Marine... Uh, lore. It is one of the most famous battles that, of the Marines. Uh, there's the, I think, the Battle of Bella Wood. Of course, there's Iwo Jima. But the Chosin Reservoir is something that uh, all Marines uh, really know as well. So, Marty, it's great to have you here. But, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, tell us a bit about you. Where did you grow out, up? What was your childhood like? Oh, I, uh, I would... Uh grew up in Sioux City, Iowa. Uh, it's on the Missouri River. And uh, a childhood is a good one, you know. It's, in the Midwest, childhoods are very nice. Uh-huh. Um, I, uh, uh, I'm trying to think now. Well, it would be interesting. Well, it seems like... My, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather uh, grew up uh, in Quebec, Canada. Okay. And right across the river from Quebec City. It's a little village. Uh, and uh, he, he had a, a very interesting childhood and particularly his his later life uh, when about the age of 17 or 18 he went down to New York 
city. Worked there shortly. And then they would finally go down to St. Louis. And uh, that was about 1850. And uh, he went to work with the American Fur Company. He, he was a trapper. And uh, hell, he was an Indian fighter, too, really. Wow. And he wrote an autobiography about his adventures uh, up the river, up the Missouri. And, uh, and he was stationed at uh, Fort Union, which was right on the border of Montana and North Dakota. And uh, a very, very interesting autobiography. He, Can people you know, still get it? Oh, yeah, it's for sale up there at, the Union, at Fort Union. Wow. And what's, what's the title? Uh, what's the title, Mama? You know? Oh, I'll get it. She's going to get it. Okay. Sounds good. Um, and he, made, he married a Blackfoot woman. Okay. And uh, they had a daughter. And by that time, he was, after a few years, he got real tired of of uh, that country and the dealing with the Indians and it was getting very tiresome. So he uh, kidnapped the daughter because the wife didn't want it. She was a real Indian and she wanted the daughter to be uh, raised as an Indian. And so he raised, he uh, kidnapped the daughter Went back down the river and at the uh, junction of the Big Sioux and the Missouri River, he stopped and said, well, that's a good place to stay. So he and a couple of his friends, French-Canadian friends, kind of homesteaded there. And he, he set up a fur trading post. And, uh, very, very, very interesting. But he was a, uh, the name of it is Adventures on the Upper Missouri. That's the name of the book. Okay. And Louis Dossier Letillier, that was him. Wow. That's his name. And it, oh, it's, it's hair-raising some of the things in here. <laughs> the, the, the grizzly bears chasing them into the river. and you know, Very, very interesting. Oh, it, it anyway, sounds fascinating. Where are we? Okay, well, you were t we, I asked you about your childhood, and uh, I remember a little bit of the story that you'd mentioned about your great-great-grandfather. Uh, so good childhood. Uh, what about, though, you were, were a child during World War II. What do you remember about that, Marty? Uh, well, I had a brother. Well, two brothers. One brother was uh, in the Army, and he... Uh, he uh, was in the Pacific. He won a bronze star. And, uh, and finally, after the war, he came home and he had malaria. And I remember going to the hospital with him. I was trying to get treated for it. But uh, I think in the later years, that, that kind of got better. Okay. So, so I remember, you know, not too long ago, well, you know, he died about 10 years ago. Okay. But that, by then, it, it didn't bother him too much. You know? And the other brother was uh, in Europe. 
and uh, he founded a typewriter over there. Okay. Towards the end of the war, yeah. Okay. Well, all, all jobs are super important, uh, for sure. Did your brother that was awarded the Bronze Star, did he ever talk about why he he received that award? No, he never did say much about it, no. Isn't that interesting? I know. Uh, it is just really interesting, and now, now don't I wish that I wish that I had um, gotten more stories of uh, many of the people from my family. I didn't really realize, you know, just what what they were holding there. So, but let's talk about you uh, now, Marty. Uh, okay. So we've gone through World War II, and the Korean War starts. Uh, where were you? How did it end up that you joined the Marines? I was a student at uh, Trinity High School in Sioux City, and uh, I played football, and I had dreams of playing for Notre Dame someday, but that one, uh, the first year there, the first fall it was, I got hit right on my left thigh, and I had a about a handful, but because of a boss uh, softball, huge thing, and we couldn't get rid of it. I went to the YMCA. Nobody knew anything about stuff in those days, and the, uh, the uh, of course the uniforms were bad; they didn't fit right, which is why I got hurt. But anyway, uh, so finally I said, you know, this is baloney. I can't. Uh, I won't be able to play. God knows when I will be able to play. So I kind of uh, thought, thought about my great-grandfather. And uh, I said, well, you know, he was an adventurer. And I kind of had, you know, why when you're young, you know, you think, well, let's just see the world. So I was going to join the Navy. And my dad said, well, if you, you know, if you made up your mind, you're going to do this. Then uh, once you join the Marines, they're the best, you know, you couldn't, can't go wrong. So I said, okay, <laughs> I didn't care. So I joined uh, the Marine Corps then. Uh, I was 17 years old. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I started off in Omaha, Nebraska with a physical, then took a train there to San Diego and boot camp in San Diego. And then it started, you know. What year was that, Marty? 1948. Okay, 1948. Uh, World War II is over. The Korean War then starts in 1950. You're in the Marines. Uh, tell us just a little bit about boot camp, though. Boot camp? Yes. Uh, that's great fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the time, I didn't think it was fun. Uh, they, they treat you pretty bad. That was their philosophy in those days, anyway. Uh, that treat you bad, you know. <laughs> toughen you up. Do you feel? So, do you feel that that happened? Did you feel like you were toughened up for battle, or what do you think? Well, yeah, I'm sure it helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But uh, I think it's, it's, it's they. Uh, I think they've changed their philosophy a little bit. Uh, in boot camp, it's uh, and then it was really, you know, God, I tell you, they treated you like dirt. Uh, but now I think it's it's it's, it's better. 
But uh, maybe maybe that's good. Future like dirt, you know. Toughen you up. I, I remember I had been talking to one of uh, World War II veteran, a Marine, and he said something along the line. His mother said to him, I did my best uh, to teach you discipline, and now the Marines are going to finish it. And I thought that, that was always <laughs> a great quote. <laughs> yeah, they will, man. <laughs> so, Marty, those two couple of years, so you joined in 1948, the Korean War breaks out in 1950. What did you do during those two kind of peacetime years? That uh, I went, I uh, was stationed at Camp Pendleton, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oceanside is a little town there on the coast. And uh, right outside the gate is uh, uh, Camp Pendleton. And uh, so I, I spent uh, two years, about two years there. And, uh, I, you know, there's the wonderful weather. I kind of like the weather. Right. And uh, uh, I had a brother, my second brother, who had been stationed in Europe, uh, he got out and he I went to school at the uh, University of uh, Southern California, so I would I mean, we I would on weekends when we had liberty I would go up and uh, we'd fool around up there with my brother and uh, we bought some weights and uh, we we had he lived in a boarding house uh, just close to the campus and. The back door, the back, uh, the back of the of the boarding house had a, an area where you could where you could store uh, weights, barbells. So we got some barbells and we went to work on that, and uh, we also went to. Uh, once in a while, we'd go to Muscle Beach in Santa Monica, on the coast. Uh, well, it's probably good you had those weights so that you could go to Muscle Beach there, huh? Yeah, right. If <laughs> <laughs> you don't have the weights, you feel like a little out of, out of. <laughs> right, right. Well, Marty Letelier, uh, we're going to go to break. This is Kim Munson, America's Veteran Stories Show. We're talking with Marty uh, Letelier. He is a con- Korean um, veteran, a Marine veteran. And uh, before we go to break, though, I want to give a shout out to one of my great partners, and that is Kirsch Insurance Group. Uh, they are specialists in the Medicare arena, and uh, they work with a lot of different companies so that they can actually help you find the best plan that works for your individual needs. And so be sure and reach out to them. Their website is iKirsch, that's I-K-I-R-S-C-H.com. That's iKirsch.com. And uh, we're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Marty Letelier. Karen Levine, award-winning realtor with REMAX Alliance, has a heart for our veterans. 
As a proud supporter of Americans Veterans Stories with Kim Munson, Karen helps bring to life the individual stories of our servicemen and women. Karen honors the sacrifices of our military and is grateful for our freedom. As a member of the National Association of Realtors Board of Directors, Karen works to protect private property rights. Karen loves to help our active duty military and veterans when buying or selling your home. Call Karen Levine at 303-877-7516 for more details. That's 303-877-7516. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Medical freedom, patient choice, and informed consent are all staples of comprehensive health care. You'll find exactly that at Roots Medical, located in the Denver Tech Center, offering specialties in hormones, thyroid, gut health, detox, and COVID recovery. Functional, comprehensive, primary health care. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your health care concerns. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. Roots Medical is a proud member of Colorado Healthcare Providers for Freedom. All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. And welcome back to America's Veterans Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out the website. That is americasveteranstories.com. On the line with me is Marty uh, Letelier, and he is a um, Korean War veteran, uh, a Marine veteran. And the Korean War is many times referred to as the Forgotten War. And it was, uh, it's uh, per the Eisenhower Library, it says that the Korean War um, began after five years of simmering tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And it began on June 25th, 1950, when the North Korean People's Army invaded South Korea in a coordinated general attack at several strategic points along the 38th parallel, which is the line dividing communist North Korea from non-communist Republic of Korea. So you're in the Marines. Did you expect that this was going to happen, uh, Marty? That I would end up there? Yeah. Did you did you think that we were no, no. going to be involved in a war in Korea? No, that's too quick after the Second World War. Sure. I figured it was going to be nice, and I just joined the Marines and spent four years, and uh, it was, you know, see California and go swimming up in the ocean. Great fun. But it didn't work out that way. That war started, and that sure messed things up out there. So once the war started, uh, did training uh, change? Did uh, the things that you were working on, your duties, did that change? No, no. Well, it started, and we immediately uh, were called up and 
sent to Korea. So, so what? Uh, when did you arrive in Korea? Nothing changed. In the, uh, let's see. Uh, I think it was uh, August the second of uh, fifty. So you I were learned. you were there really for all of it, weren't you, Marty? Yeah. Oh, you bet, boy. The whole bit. Okay. So you arrive, and what happens then? Okay, then uh, I had a map with you. Let me think. There's a there's an area in South Korea that we called the Pusan Perimeter. This included Pusan, the, the big the town Pusan. Uh, now they changed the name to Busan, I think. They're always doing that, changing names. I know. But anyway, uh, that went went up about, oh, I don't know, 20, 30 miles, kind of a little rectangle down there. And uh, the, the North Koreans has a whole island, the whole peninsula, except for that little spot of uh, in the right around the town of Pusan. And uh, that's why they shipped us there so quick, because they're just about ready to lose South Korea. So you're saying that the uh, North Koreans had everything on the Korean peninsula except for this little square? Right, right. And they send you guys in? That's why they got the Marines over there. The Army was there, and they were not having much luck. They, uh, well, they weren't trained. They, like, they emptied out uh, Japan, where there were, you know, pound typewriters and chasing those pretty Japanese girls. And they didn't know anything about fighting. Uh, so the only troops, really, that were ready at that time were the, the Marines. So they got us over there and threw us into the battle. So, and did, how did you come on to Korea? You didn't have to do an amphibious landing then, did you? Oh, no, no. You know, because they had Busan. Okay. They still had Busan. And so the ship landed there. Got it, got it. Okay. And uh, then we went from, like, we take trucks. Uh, see, the first the first battle, we took uh, on trucks, went to the, uh, let's see, where would we be? Oh, the west. I think it would be west, around the west part of that, of that little area that we still had. Okay. And uh, so then they threw us into a, a, a battle there, and we kicked the hell out of them. And then we, they shipped us or by truck again to another area on the Miryang River. And we did the same thing there. So we saved uh, Korea from the, the North Koreans. With this small, small bunch of Marines, because it was just the fifth Marines. Wow! And uh, 
We we did we did a good job, boy. I tell you, the, the, some of the uh, Navy, uh, Army officers just raved about us because they 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 couldn't they couldn't control these their troops. They couldn't talk to them. They couldn't make them do anything. First thing they do is is turn around and, and run. You know, you can't blame them, really, because they didn't have, they didn't have any training. They didn't know. They, they, they just, that was kind of criminal, the way they treated the Army, you know. They had to go over there and supposedly stop the invasion by the North Koreans. But how are they going to do it? They don't have anything. Okay, Marty, a question then. I've heard, as I've talked to so many veterans, training. What do you, what do you think that training is? It's, it's physical? It's mental? It's preparation for battle? Is that what it is? That's right. And it's mainly, it's not physical so much. Uh, there's some, you know, but, but it's mental. It's speed the core. Spirit of the core. Uh, that you, you take, you go and, and study the history of the Marine Corps, and, and then you go, of course, you've got uh, all these Marines, the uh, uh, NCOs, non-commissioned officers, still in the Corps, and they they knew what they were doing. They'd been, they'd fought the Japanese for a couple, three years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, you know, they, 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 that didn't bother them so much, the, 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 the North Koreans, because they would, you know, they'd yell at, at the Marines, and they would, Marines, you son of a bitch, you're gonna, we're gonna kill you, we're gonna cut you, which we're called off. Uh, but they, that didn't bother them. And because we didn't bother them, it didn't bother us. The kids, you know, they got 18, I was 19 then. Wow. And, uh, they, they, you know, they, we figured they knew what was going on. And they did, though. They knew how to fight. And uh, it sure surprised the North Koreans. Yeah, when they didn't know what the hell happened here. Right, right. But they had such an easy time, you know, with these poor army troops. They just didn't know what they were doing. They had poor leadership, and uh, it just—it was, it was terrible. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, Marty, we, we're going to go to break. I'm talking with Marty uh, Letelier. He is a Marine veteran of the Korean War. The Korean War was fought 1950 to 1953, and, and it began in June, and he was shipped over in August. He was there for all of it. We'll be right back with Marty Letelier. 
The Metro home ownership real estate market is very tight right now. That's why Kim Munson recommends you have seasoned Remax realtor Karen Levine on your side of the table. Karen Levine will help you navigate through the many details of your home buying experience so that you can successfully pursue your American dream. Because Karen Levine cares about property rights for each individual, she volunteers hundreds of hours to represent home ownership opportunities at the local, county, state, and national level. If you are considering buying or selling your home, call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516. Again, that's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Monson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim. M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Franktown Firearms owns their name and their word. They never compromise on their beliefs. They never go back on a promise, and they run their gun range the same way. Family-operated and family-friendly, Franktown Firearms doesn't answer to a corporate office. For multiple generations in business on the same property, they believe in the power of a handshake. Their team has fought to keep their range completely independent so they can go to sleep at night knowing they did it their way. Nobody would call this crew politically correct, but they treat their clients of all ages with respect and decency. They know you work hard for your money too, so they count it an honor when you spend it with them. Stop in today and mention KLZ to get half off the initiation fee on any membership type and get access to the range after hours. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. God bless America, land that I love. On the line with me is Marine veteran, Korean War veteran, and that is Marty Letelier. And we were talking about when uh, the Marines arrived in Korea, things changed. The North Koreans uh, realized that um, we were serious. And uh, you were having success. We just uh, talked about the battle at the Maryang River. Uh, what happens after that, Marty? Uh, uh, let's see, a couple more battles. Uh, then come, let me think. Uh, I, yeah. think it was just, I think it was in August. Okay. Uh, they pull us out. MacArthur has this brilliant idea that we're going to go on the offense and go have a landing further up the coast in Korea and go to Seoul, which is right there, and take that, retake it, and maybe then we can kick the North Koreans out of Korea. So... This is not the Incheon landing, is it? Oh, the that's it. Is it? Okay. The Incheon landing, right. And that, uh, uh, that, that really caught him. Caught him with the pants down. They didn't know what the hell to do. We weren't supposed to be there. We weren't supposed to land there. And uh, nobody wanted to except from Carter. Uh, he had some good ideas. 
there are other times that I, I wonder about the guy. But, uh-huh. but uh, he had good ideas. And he said, uh, he figured, well, we'll go and hit him back there in the, in the rear end. And they won't know what the hell hit him. They'll go to Korea, I mean, uh, to uh, Seoul, and kick him out of there, and the thing will be over. So uh, that's what that happened. Uh, we had a, a hell of a battle going uh, down in the Pusan perimeter down there. And that's when MacArthur said, Let's, we'll go up and have an amphibious landing at Incheon. So right in the middle of a battle where we were winning, we were pulled out and we boarded ship and went up and made the landing at Incheon. And, uh, That's pretty aggressive, uh, and oh, I yeah, say that not necessarily in a, a, a great way to open up a, another battle when you're involved in this one. Did he do it because he wanted to surprise them, or what do you think, Marty? Oh, yeah, I'm, I think so, yeah. Okay. He wanted the Marines to do to, to take, because by this time, the 7th Marines had been landed there. I was with the 5th. The 7th Marines landed in the 1st Marines. These were the regiments. So now we had a full division okay. in John. Before it was just well, one regiment, the 5th. Wow, okay. So... So, and I'm looking at this. The Battle of Inchon was uh, in September of 1950. Yeah, okay. That sounds right. Okay. Yeah. And... Uh, I remember we had bacon and eggs for breakfast, and we were we had to go in on the landing craft, and but the only time we could go in was later on in the day. The tides were just crazy here, okay. and then the tides were wrong, were bad, so we had to wait until about five o'clock to go in. So come five o'clock, we boarded the, the landing craft, went down the nets, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> your rifles around your neck, and God, it's just, it, wow. not, I, I, I hated it, boy. Wow. <laughs> and then, and then to and get, get to the landing craft, also, if, in, if the water's rough, I mean, it's not easy to do that. Oh, and that damn, they're going up and down, the landing craft. Yeah. Wow. Right next to the boat, the big boat, we're on. So, and so you got to time it. You, you've got to, you got to really jump. Gee, many. The last, the last, I, got, I don't know how many feet are involved, quite a few. And, uh. You know, and you got this rifle around your neck, and it's just miserable. And to find me anywhere, it worked out okay, but not not much fun. But anyway, so we, we then we rendezvous. You go around in the circles, 
until you know, all the landing craft are down and, and going and running. And then you peel off and you head for sure. And we, we went to hit the uh, shore. And, and it's not like in the uh, Second World War where there was a sandy beach. This was a, there was a, they had a wall. Uh, it was a, a stone wall. I suppose this was because of the, the tides. But anyway, there was a stone wall, and we rammed into that, and we had homemade ladders. And we threw those up against the wall, and then we climbed the ladder, and finally we're on, we're on the, the beach. And, uh, was that pretty fortified by the North Koreans, or did no. MacArthur choose that because there was that wall and that the, you wouldn't be expected? What do you think? Exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the North Koreans, nobody's dumb enough for crazy. Enough. <laughs> Except <They're>, the Americans. <laughs> yeah, right. So we landed, and uh, uh, that's where the, the first Marine to get the, the Medal of Honor was there. This was, uh, what the heck was his name? It was a Spanish. Um, Martinez. Was that it? I think so. I want to say... John, because I interviewed his cousin, and I think okay. I'll take a look at that while you continue on. So tell us what happened. Okay, so he was there, and uh, he was the first or second lieutenant, and he he was charged up there with his troops, and there was a uh, an enemy. Uh, North Korean, or maybe it was still the South Korean, but anyway, they had a machine gun nest there, and uh, so he he uh, he ran up and pulled out a hand grenade, and just as he was throwing it, they shot him in the chest. Okay, and I found it. This one is Baldomero Lopez. That's it. Yep. And, but, and that, of course, made him drop the hand grenade. And so his troops were doing right around him there. So he just rolled over and laid on top of that. Wow. And he saved all their lives. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And he was still... Makes me up to talk about it. He was just 25 years old. Amazing. Truly amazing. That is what he was, 25? Yeah, it says he was born in 1925, and of course he died in 1950. Yeah. Wow. But anyway, yeah, he was, he was some guy. Very. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. And, uh, Marty, you there, did you witness this? Yeah, you bet. Yeah, oh, right my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Well, the different countries, they're all bunched together. They're, sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
So tell us, uh, here, I'm losing track of time. I'm getting so interested in, in this. So I need to make sure that I, because we want to get to the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. We've got a, a couple of minutes left. Um, what else do you want to tell us about Inshon? That's from there we went up to retake Seoul. Uh, North Koreans, when they started the war, took Seoul right away. So we, and... Uh, uh, that was very good in the battle. It's okay. Was that um, battle? Was it like door to door kind of a battle, or what was that like? Oh yeah, the street. Yeah, here in Seoul, and uh, I got a book that with all kinds of pictures of I'm here. The book too. Uh, it, 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 of course, by work correspondent. And then he, he, he took the little uh, magazine. Anyway, he took a bunch of pictures and all that stuff. Okay. Okay. Hagen Soul, the Nick and that, and you've really fought your way up. Now, do you. Do, um, do we now have all of the territory? Would it be. Is there still North Koreans in that area as well? There may be some, but they're down there. They're surrendering, yes. Or hiding in the hills. For, for all intent purposes, they're done. Okay, so for that that little piece of real estate, which was the Pusan perimeter, you pushed the North Koreans back. And uh, let's um, let's stop there. We're going to go to break. I'm talking with Marty Letelier. He is a Korean War veteran, uh, a Marine veteran. And before we do that, though, these stories come to you because I have great partners. And one of my great partners is Hooters Restaurants. They have five locations, and that is Loveland, uh, Aurora, Westminster, Lone Tree, and Colorado Springs. They have all kinds of specials. Football kids eat free on Saturdays. Uh, be sure and check that out at my website, which is Kim Munson, M-O-N. And we're going to go to break when we... I come back, we'll continue the conversation. Three Points Financial is a fiduciary financial planning company focused on helping individuals and families. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz at Three Points Financial specialize in investment strategies, tax planning and preparation, and retirement planning with no product sales or commissions. Tax laws have changed and will continue to change. Inflation is real. Three Points Financial helps you maneuver through these changes to achieve your financial success. For clarity and a solid, relevant financial and investment plan while working with a company that puts your interests at the forefront, schedule a no-obligation initial consultation at threepointsfinancial.com. That's threepointsfinancial.com. You're passionate for technology and teamwork, enjoy diversity in your day-to-day -day work, and want a meaningful job. DSoft Technology, Engineering, and Analysis is a leading technology systems provider based in Colorado. They're seeking talented software and technology professionals like you. So apply now to work for one of the fastest-growing and long-established information technology firms in Southern Colorado. Offering cloud and system engineering services, custom software, and website development using .NET, Drupal, and open source technologies. As a veteran-owned small business, it's a bonus if you've ever served in the military. Your new mission will be building systems for fighting wildland fires on the ground and defeating our enemies in space. The ideal candidate has accountability, integrity, and exceptional customer service across the defense, government, and commercial sectors. For more information about the position, call DSoft Technology today at 719 
719-598-7107. That's 719-598-7107. From the mountains to the prairies to to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. I have on the line with me Marty Letelier. He is a Marine, Marine War veteran. And uh, Marty, when we stopped from the last segment, uh, the Marines have taken Seoul. What happened that? Uh, we're to go by boat around the peninsula to uh, the other the side of Korea. Uh, uh, Bob Hope was there. He beat us. Uh, <laughs> he beat us there, and he was there with his, you know, his, his, all of his cohorts. And, but anyway, then we go up toward the um, the uh, reservoir, because the reservoir is inside the country up. You know, I don't know how far from the coast. Not, not too far, 23. So then we head up the uh, reservoir and we stopped short of the reservoir. And the first Marine there and digs in there. And then we, fifth and seventh Marines, go up there's another 23 miles to the Hagaru which is at the bottom of the reservoir, uh, the bottom part of it. And uh, then we've done the fun stretch. Uh, what was the purpose of sending you guys? We were all, they, MacArthur thought we were going to go all the way to the Yalu River, and the war was over. Okay, got it. And you'd be home by Christmas. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, we thought we would be, but anyway, we we go to to Hagaruri, and then uh, it's getting colder. It's colder in the center here now. Before that, it was pretty nice in the fall weather. You know, apples around the trees, and it was pretty nice, really. But this is November now, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. And, uh, but, uh, and then now it's getting cold. So, uh, we, uh, oh, God. And the dates, and was, yeah, the dates on that was November 50 to December 13th, 1950 is when the battle was fought. And yes, it was getting very cold. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the soldiers, Worst enemy, other than the, the enemy you're fighting, okay. and uh, that—I think I, I got within of Korea, and I got. I, okay. Oh, uh, it's terrible. Way through, and uh, you're always sick. And, you know, it's just—it's uh, terrible. So we had that, and. Uh, so I truck to uh, toward Udamni, another little village, and where's you know, and an old beach, and I just uh, I'm in agony. 
Koreans, Chinese, now the Chinese get it. We undergo tracers. We we use red tracers. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Okay. But maybe tell us what they are. Well, that's that's, part of the cartridge. Uh, Maybe every third or fourth one. And it, it, you fire it, you can see where it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the Chinese used green ones. I mean, used red. Okay. Color. But, uh, Did I, I jump in on this? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They were... That started it, boy, I tell you. And I always, I say to this day, an article in a, in a, in a medical journal on her dysentery. Because I, like, tracers started going, things were rattling, going off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that'll do it, huh? So it'll do it, boy. Uh, stayed there, but uh, oh, no, not just a few days. And uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner there, and we were trucked over the other side of the reservoir to you, damn knee there when they would hit us. It started and uh, they would the first battle there it was dark there was no such thing as a foxhole because it's frozen. Right. The temperatures got as cold as negative 36. And later on we got to 40, boy. Oh my gosh, 40 below. But we had a good, we had a good, uh, we had not big parkas, and you know, I, I can't complain about that. The shoes were lousy. Uh, I got lost right all these years. I'm getting good money every month with frostbite. And you, you're nine. Yeah, I went 91. Yeah, I'll be 91 in March. Okay, yeah. okay. But, uh, uh, you damn knee. And they would. The Chinese horde. <laughs> they come in by the hundreds. And that's how they always, that, to that time, win against you know, the, 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 the troops, the army troops, because they, they scared them. And I'm scared too. But we had all these NCOs who had been through. Iwo Jima and all those things, Okinawa. They said, because, uh, you know, the uh, Chinese would yell, hey, you dirty son of a bitch, we're going to cut you to pieces. We're going to kill you. And they would just yell the heck at them, come and get us. Come and get us. Wow. Come on. And uh, then they would just shoot them by the hundreds. Uh, it was slaughter. Then they, the Chinese, that's really the first time the Chinese got uh, 
acquainted with the Marines. But that's that nowhere. They, they couldn't figure it out. God, what would we? These Marines. Uh, but you guys were really pretty much. Sur- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, how did you get out of there? Well, we 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 had a, a we've got it's a division, and we've got a lot of equipment. So we got trucks and tanks and stuff like that. So we just bulldozed our way through on the road to Hagaroo. So we, that's where we headed for, Hagaroo. That's where the, the commanding general had his headquarters. So that, that was the start of the withdrawal. Uh, it's, uh, we, you know, God, it's, it's, it's a miserable uh, kind of existence, I'll tell you. Everybody's dying. Well, all the Marines are dying. In the the morning, you take take the the bodies of your friends, your Mm. Marines, who died Mm. at night, and you throw them in a pile, and that's it. Uh, So we just kept going. So we got back to Hagaroo. And uh, then uh, our, our feet were, were in bad shape. Uh, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they had frostbite. That's, that's, that's simple. Yeah. And uh, so we lined up. And when we got back to Hagaroo, and. Uh, the corpsman would look at our feet, and if they were bad enough, it could be because our, they had bulldozed a, a kind of a landing strip there, and that planes could land. And so if you are bad enough, they'd put you on the plane and ship you off to Japan. And, uh, so what happened for you after that? Marty? I stuck with him all the way. Uh, until we got to the coast. And when we uh, got to the coast, we had landing craft and that picked us up and took us out to the bigger ships and we were going to go back south and and, uh, I remember as as the landing as we we, um, got to the big ship that was going to take us back to south One of the sailors said, uh, this, uh, where's the rest of your company? 
Because, you know, we already lost so many men. And uh, somebody piped up one of the rings and said, this is it. There ain't no more. This is all that's left. Because we had about uh, maybe 50, 60 guys. Should have been 250. Wow. And uh, <laughs> as poor sailors, they looked at yeah, their mouths dropped open, and but they treated us real well. Um, okay, Marty Latelier, yeah. um, we're we're basically out of time. What's how would you like to wrap this up for our listeners? Oh, I don't know. It's going to happen again. I'm sure. This year, this time, it's going to be a part of the Russians. Uh, I don't know. The world's crazy. Well, you know, you know, why in the hell are you killing each other? It doesn't make any sense. Well, that is for sure. Um, and Marty, I so am so appreciative of my freedom, and for men like you who have have gone through really hell. Uh, to make sure that we that we have our freedom, and I, I seriously mean it when I say that we stand on the shul- uh, the shoulders of giants. So, Marty Letelier, thank you so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. and honored history of America. There are those who paid the last, the final price, who were called upon by chance or desperate circumstance to make the ultimate sacrifice. A grateful nation... And welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N. SON.com. Sign up for our weekly newsletter there, and you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. And thank you to all of you who support us. We are an independent voice searching for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. And this Memorial Day, we've put together a couple of really important shows. We've, we've grabbed these uh, shows from our America's Veterans Story show. And then in hour two, we'll be uh, playing the encore of an interview that we did with Lou Zogby. And he was uh, at uh, the World War II Battle of the Bulge. And we just thought that for Memorial Day that this would be something that would be really important. So I hope that you enjoy uh, these, both of these shows because they're so important. And I wish all of you a very blessed Memorial Day. I'm excited to do an interview today with Lee, uh, Lou Zobi, and he is 97 years old, and he is a veteran of the Battle of the Bulge of World War II, and the Battle of the Bulge began uh, 16 December 1944 and lasted until 25 January 1945. Lou Zobi, welcome so much to the show. Thank you. 
And uh, also, Mrs. Zobie is there with you. So if perhaps you need a little clarification on a question, uh, that will be Mrs. Zobie that is helping with us, uh, helping us with that as well. So, Lou, let's start about your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Middletown, New York. Uh, I was 17 when Pearl Harbor happened. And I graduated in 1942. I was drafted in March of 43. Okay. And drafted into the Army, correct? I was drafted into the uh, Army, and I was did basic training in the combat engineers. After that, uh, at the end of the basic training, I was in Massachusetts. There was a program a new program that people don't know about it was called the Army Specialized Training Program. I qualified. It was a college program. And uh, my captain said I qualified. Would I like to go? I said, sure. They sent me to Harvard. That was, <laughs> that was in <laughs> July 1943. So, but at any rate, uh, it was a short-lived program. The only thing I got out of that was I got to see and hear Winston Churchill give a speech. So that was the highlight of the short term. It only lasted uh, one and a half semesters, and I was sent over to the 17th Airborne, and I became a gliderman. A gliderman is a person that uh, travels in gliders when they use airborne drops. So, uh, Lou, explain to our listeners what a glider was exactly. Well, there's uh, 13 men in a glider. Uh, there's a squad of men, and uh, when they use an airborne drop, a C-47 plane tows one glider into uh, into the drop zone. They used them in uh, in Italy, in D-Day, in Holland, and I was in the last airborne drop, which I can talk about later. Uh, it was called Operation Varsity in March of 1945. But at any rate, uh, I was sent down to, uh, to the 17th Airborne, and... Uh, the 17th Airborne was a brand-new division. We were all pretty green. So when it came to D-Day, we didn't have to go. But they sent us over to England in uh, August of that year, of uh, 44. And uh, so we sat around in August. And, uh, of course, at that time, uh, the armies uh, had been... Had Pushed, the American army had pushed uh, the German army back into Germany. And we thought we were going to miss the war. However, even uh, Eisenhower and General Montgomery, they were waiting for Hitler to, uh, to uh, surrender. But unbeknownst to anybody, uh, Hitler did his breakthrough on December 16th. We started the Battle of the Bulge. So, of course, everybody called in on that time. So the 17th Airborne got called in, but 
we couldn't go in right away. On December 16th, the, the skies were very uh, cloudy. Uh, they couldn't fly us over into France until the uh, 23rd, Christmas, mm-hmm. Christmas Eve. So they flew us over into France. Christmas Day, we had a uh, cold sea ration, if you know what a sea ration is. It's like Mm a 10-ounce can of dog food, (laughs) any rate. So the next day, they trucked us up to the uh, Belgian border. In the meantime, on December 16th, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne were already in France and several other divisions. So they took the brunt of it, and uh, we went in on the uh, 28th of December into the uh, into the Ardennes. See, the Battle of the Bulge officially is the Battle of the uh, of Ardennes. The Ardennes is a forest, and uh, that's when we entered. And from there, it was cold. It was about 10 degrees. Started snowing. We had no overshoes, mm. and we plugged along. And about the third day, people complained about their feet. And mine, I had frostbite. I didn't feel my feet for three weeks. So, uh, and we fought our way through Belgium, and a lot of, lot of noise. We walked. We rode on tanks. They trucked us. Uh, the 17th Airborne traveled about 75 miles in our uh, efforts. Uh, we had one charge, uh, one basic charge, and that was to free, uh, liberate a small town called Flamierge, uh, which was about 20 miles northwest of Bastogne. Everybody knows about Bastogne. Right. The 101st Airborne was trapped in Bastogne. They were surrounded by the Germans. The German soldier, German general, sent a note to uh, McCall. I forget the name. General McCall. I think it was McCulloch. Yeah. And... uh, and he and the general said to his aide, you know, how do I answer this? Uh, well, the, the general, when he got the note, he says, nuts. So, he, and the general says, how do I answer this note? He says, well, the aide said, you've already said it. Send him back the word nuts. Anyway, we, he didn't surrender. And, of course, uh, the 101st and 82nd Airborne fought their way out of, got out of that situation. But our charge was Flamiers to liberate that small town, which was down in a little valley. We had to uh, cross over a ridge to go down into the town. And it took us three days to recapture, to liberate that town. And we had about a thousand casualties a day. Uh, but uh, it was chaotic, scary. And uh, anyway, after that, we kept plodding along, doing our thing uh, through the forest. And 
we finally ended up uh, the early, uh, about the middle of January into Luxembourg, and we were there for a time. And of course, on January 25th, the Battle of the Bulge was considered over. The German army had been pushed back into Germany, and that was we thought was going to be the end of the war. Uh, people don't know that the Battle of the Bulge was the biggest, largest battle of World War II. The reason being it was a battle of 40 days, and it involved almost a million soldiers fighting. We had about almost 500,000 American soldiers fighting against over 450,000 German soldiers. It's hard to believe there were almost a million in that battle, and the U.S. Uh, US forces uh, sustained 81,000 casualties, uh, 20,000 deaths. Oh. So that's uh, pretty substantial for one battle. That's really substantial, uh, Lou Zobi. And uh, I was, as I was looking at this, it's uh, titled The Bloodiest Battle of World War II, and that is probably uh, why. And we're going to delve into this a bit more. But I did want to ask you, Lou, regarding D-Day. You guys were considered not ready to partake in D-Day, but what do you remember about D-Day? About D-Day. D-Day? Yeah. Well, uh D-Day, as I said, with D-Day, were, we were still back in the States. And, uh, of course, uh, we were happy that we didn't do D-Day. But, but I mean, considering that uh, it was a real bloody situation, uh, um, that's, that's my memory, uh, just to be happy that we, w- w- that we were not involved in it. But I felt bad about all the others that had to go so it's my memory okay but that was uh, in d-day was uh, june uh, 6th 1944 and yeah. that was when the allies the americans did get a toehold uh, into western europe to start to push back uh, on hitler and uh, really his evil regime. And um, so there were a number of battles in 1944. And, of course, we're talking about the Battle of the Bulge. We thought it was appropriate to uh, get Lou uh, on this interview because the Battle of the Bulge began on 16 December 1944. And as Lou mentioned, it was a 40-day battle. Uh, it ended uh, 25 January 1945. So we're going to go to break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation with World War II veteran uh, Lou Zobi. Before we do that, though, I have great sponsors for the show, and one of them is Hooters Restaurants. They have five locations, and that is uh, Loveland, Aurora, Westminster, Lone Tree, and Colorado Springs. And they have all kinds of specials, and so it's a great place to get together with friends. If you want to watch sports, they have all kinds of televisions. And uh, be sure and check out my website, kimmunz.com. Um, For all my sponsors, highly recommend all of them. We're going to go to break. When we return, we'll continue the conversation with Lou Zobi. 
The Metro home ownership real estate market is very tight right now. That's why Kim Munson recommends you have seasoned Remax realtor Karen Levine on your side of the table. Karen Levine will help you navigate through the many details of your home buying experience so that you can successfully pursue your American dream. Because Karen Levine cares about property rights for each individual, she volunteers hundreds of hours to represent home ownership opportunities at the local, county, state, and national level. If you are considering buying or selling your home, call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516. Again, that's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Monson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim. M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. And welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. And today we are interviewing Lou Zobi, and he is a World War II uh, veteran, Army veteran of the Battle of the Bulge. And that was considered uh, the bloodiest battle of World War II. And there, there were many brutal battles for sure. It uh, began on 16 December 1944, went on for 40 days until January 25th of 1945. Lou Zobi, you really gave us a, an understanding of uh, kind of the overview of what happened with Battle of the Bulge. But I know you've got some stories. What's some stories, uh, personal stories, that you could share with us? Well, <laughs> a couple of incidents. Uh, one day it was a very quiet, sunny day, cold, no noise, nobody was harassing anybody. So five, five of us were standing around just chit-chatting, when all of a sudden uh, mortar shells from the German army exploded in the trees above us and shrapnel came down and one fellow was killed, another fellow lost an arm, two others were hit hard with shrapnel and and I was standing there with a little half-inch cut on my hand. Now, how do you explain that? I, it's hard to explain. But at any rate, when things quieted down, the medic, who was a friend, said, uh, I'll put you in for a Purple Heart. So I said, Art, no, those guys get a Purple Heart. I don't want the Purple Heart. Give it to them. Well, <laughs> the, the thing is, at the time, no one knew that the Purple Heart was worth five points when it was time to go home. Because to go home at the end of the war, you needed 55 points based on how many months in, uh, in the States and how many months overseas. And I had 52 points. So I couldn't go home uh, because I didn't take the Purple Heart. <laughs> so another time, uh, uh, again, it was a quiet sunny day, again cold, snow was about 15, 18 inches deep when my, when my uh, platoon leader said, we've lost contact with division, which means uh, back then 
it was hardwired. The phone was hardwired with you know little telephone wire that was strung all the way back from our front point to the back to the division. He says, find out where the break is. So I pick up the line and I trace it out, out into the middle of the snow where obviously a motor shell had exploded and, and broke the wire. So I'm a little black dot on white snow. Mm-hmm. And again, it was quiet, so I found both ends of the wire and I had my gloves between my knees, and I was using my trench knife. A trench knife is a knife that's usually attached to your uh, leg. Anyway, uh, so as I was trying to skin the wire, a mortar shell came over and landed behind me and exploded. Well, first of all, you got to remember that the German army was only about 1,500, 1,800 feet ahead of us. So so they saw me uh, apparently as a spot on the snow and so exploded, but uh, so you take that for granted. So I finally I'm trying to get the wires put together when another mortar shell to my right landed, exploded in the snow. So again, I just kept going. I got the first wire put together when a third mortar shell landed to my left. Oh, my gosh. And I said to myself, this guy is kind of, you know, adjusting his mortar mortar to uh, on me. He was kind of zeroing in on me. So I dropped my gloves, my knife, dove into the first foxhole where two guys were eating Two, uh, two soldiers were eating uh, K-rashes because it was early morning. They said, what's all the noise? I said, uh, the freaking Germans are zeroing in on me. Well, get the F out of here, will you? <laughs> <laughs> so, they didn't, didn't want you around, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, I went back and spliced the other wire. So these are kind of uh, incidents. Uh, another time, we were in a we had a, we were in a little barn, uh, a little barn for first time inside a, uh, out of the cold. We were sleeping uh, on straw. There was a cow, a pig, and chickens, and there was about ten of us. And the cow was mooing and mooing, and one of the soldiers says, can't, can't somebody shut that cow up? I can't get to sleep. So there was a few, nice young man, a nice young soldier from Iowa. Anyway, he was a farm boy, and he says, I'll take care of that. And everybody kind of looked. They thought well, he was going to go over and slit that cow's throat. Well, he just went over there. And uh, he felt around the ribs of the cow. Uh, the cow, of course, hadn't been milked in who knows how many days. So he just took his trench knife and just slid it in between the ribs and released the gases. The cow was having stomach uh, ache. And the cow calmed down, and we all were able to sleep. So we learned something, see? <laughs> wow. Yeah, so 
we slept. I, I remember sleeping on the altar of a church, uh, which had been bombed out. And uh, those are all the experiences. Riding on a tank was kind of scary because the roads followed the tree line. And if you were on the tree line side of the tank, you were subject to possible snipers, uh, German snipers. Uh, I was on the outside, so I was lucky. But a friend of mine was on the inside, and a fellow next to him was killed by a sniper bullet. So, and hiking through the snow and, uh, you know, fighting our way forward, keep pushing the German army back. So, at any rate, uh, we, as I said, uh, we finally ended up in Luxembourg. And I, I found out a few months ago that Luxembourg had given a medal to, to, to the soldiers that went back, to the veterans that went back last year for the 75th anniversary. I didn't go back on those trips because I don't travel well. Anyway, I saw that they got a medal, and I contacted the uh, the uh, consulate. I ended up at the consulate in Washington D.C. They sent to the, they asked me for my documentation, which I sent them, and then it went to Luxembourg, and uh, they approved it. And on Veterans Day. The ambassador from Washington the day before flew into Denver and awarded me the medal. It's called the Medal of Merit. <laughs> that is so exciting. Lou, what I learned when I was back in Normandy is that the people of Western Europe revere you veterans of World War II because they were under Nazi tyranny they were hungry, they were starving, and they just revere you guys. So after all these years to um, receive this uh, this medal and for them to fly uh, here to, to the metro area to do that is really remarkable, Luzo. Con- congratulations on, on that. Yes. Uh, well, it's interesting that uh, every town, uh, when a division liberated a town, that town adopted that division. And when we did Flamiers, that town adopted the 17th Airborne. And every year since the war ended, they go through a ceremony called Liberation Day. And in fact, many of the younger ones have gotten uniforms of the division that liberated them, in our case, the 17th Airborne. And I've been in touch with one young fellow. I, we we kind of uh, talk on messenger and uh, emails back and forth. And so it's very interesting. They're still doing it. Grandchildren now are still doing Liberation Day. 
That is so important, and that's one of the reasons why we do this show, because I don't feel that that history is being taught here in the U.S. like it is in Western Europe. But we're going to go to break. I'm talking with World War II veteran Lou Zobie, and I these shows come to you because I have some really terrific uh, sponsors. Three Points Financial is a fiduciary financial planning company focused on helping individuals and families. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz at Three Points Financial specialize in investment strategies, tax planning and preparation, and retirement planning with no product sales or commissions. Tax laws have changed and will continue to change. Inflation is real. Three Points Financial helps you maneuver through these changes to achieve your financial success. For clarity and a solid, relevant financial and investment plan while working with a company that puts your interests at the forefront, schedule a no-obligation initial consultation at threepointsfinancial.com. That's threepointsfinancial.com. Inflation is out of control. Increasing prices at the gas pump and grocery stores are hurting everyday people. All these challenges we face are preventable. Individuals must understand what is going on. That's why Kim Munson is bringing truth and clarity to the issues facing our families, our communities, our state, and our country. Now, more than ever, it's important to support Kim's independent voice. Kim has the courage to research and inform you about the real issues. It's not easy, and Kim can use your help. Go to KimMunson.com to contribute. Again, help Kim by contributing at Kim Munson. That's M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Get to the range at Franktown Firearms and get your shooting skills back in shape. You consider yourself an experienced shooter, but you haven't been to the range in a while. Remember, defensive shooting skills are perishable. Firing a gun is not like riding a bike. Unless you practice regularly, don't count on your muscle memory to kick in when you need it. The team at Franktown Firearms believes the only difference between a beginner and an expert is practice. They want to give you the certainty that in a fight-or-flight scenario, you won't freeze. Imagine your frustration should you find yourself in the situation where you need to defend yourself or others, and you don't react the way you thought you would. Make sure you can count on your instincts. Sign up for a membership now. Mention KLZ Radio for a discount on your initiation fee. Walk-ins and non-members also welcome. Visit klzradio.com slash franktown now. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. God bless America, land that I love. And welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. Uh, now let's uh, continue on with Lou Zobi, and he uh, participated. He was in the Battle of the Bulge, which was one of the bloodiest battles of World War II. It began on 16 December 1944, went for 40 days, uh, ended on January 25th in 1945. Over a million or almost a million soldiers participated in this battle. Lou, let's give some context on uh, why this uh, became nicknamed the Battle of the Bulge. It really is the official name is the Battle of the Ardennes. But explain to our listeners why it is now ca also called the Battle of the Bulge. Well, okay. It's uh, when Hitler, when, when Hitler broke through the, uh, and did his uh, attack, it was on about 
70, 75 miles of the German border, German-Belgian border. And he penetrated, he penetrated almost, uh, almost 80 miles into Belgium, creating a bulge. If you look at a map, you, uh, you can see, if you look at a map, so he's got 70, 75 miles of the German border pushing through, through Bastogne and about 80 miles. So it created a bulge. Um, so that's, how, that's where the name came from. Hitler's approach was if he could get to uh, Antwerp, I think that's the that's the uh, that's the port that's the port on in Belgium. If he could get there, where there was the storage of uh, uh, airplane uh, fuel, tank fuel, and so forth, he needed that for his planes and his tanks. Of course, he never made it, fortunately, and actually. His armies were really very well trained, and uh, however, we were we outmanned them, outgunned them, out-equipped them, and that's how we won. That's why we won. Well, and this was really Hitler's last hurrah. And you mentioned this bulge where he had focused. I mean, it was a long, a long line that the Allies, the Americans, were trying to protect. But when this bulge occurred, it's pretty remarkable that they were able to hold the line. Is that correct, uh, Lou? Oh yes, uh, it was. Uh, uh, well, you know, it was. Uh, we were not. At first, we were not prepared. We only had about six divisions stretched across the German lines. But within days, we had 35 divisions, tank corps, uh, you know, artillery groups, and so on. That's that's where the 500,000 men, boy, were assembled to, to within within a few days. So, uh, but. It was a surprise attack, and actually, actually, Hitler's generals were telling him to surrender. But the man was a maniac. He, he, anyway, that's how it happened. And it is. It's rather. It's really remarkable. If during that time, as um, the Americans and the Allies were trying to uh, amass the the defense here on that. Um, that attack, if Hitler during that time would have broken through and been able to get to those fuel depots, uh, it would have been a different story. So it was very aggressive on his part to do that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Christmas during uh, the Battle of the Bulge, because um, I think many times commanders say, oh, you'll be home by Christmas. Did they ever say to you guys that you'd be home by Christmas? No, Christmas, uh, as I say, uh, for us, the 17th Airborne, uh, Christmas Day, we were in France. And, uh, uh, of course, cold. And uh, we had mass. And then, then of course, we were trucked up. So Christmas... uh, Christmas was not memorable, uh, to, to me, just uh, the fact that we were scared, 
we were going into war, into battle, and uh, that was it. Now, I'm a Catholic, so we didn't have mass throughout the Battle of the Bulge until practically when we got to Luxembourg. It was almost over at that point. So the Catholic chaplain said, said uh, it was an early afternoon, and he said, put the word out, we'll have mass at 4 o'clock in the cathedral. Now, the cathedral had a big hole in the roof right over the altar. I was never an altar boy, but anyway, uh, at 4 o'clock, there were about 20-some soldiers there, and the priest said, help me, you know, I helped him set up, and he handed me the little, what they call cruets, one for water, one for wine, and he says, put a little wine in this, put a little water in this one, and within five minutes when he asked me to just hand him the wine and the water, the water had already frozen. That's how cold it was. Oh my wow. <laughs> so anyway, that's my memory of the of a mass during the Battle of the Bulge. Another thing was uh, for about two weeks we never had any hot meal. So we were told at one point there's going to be a hot meal, but it's going to be served at dusk because, again, I told you the German army was only always about 15, 1,800 feet ahead of us. And so at dusk, the cooks lined up, and, and of course, you had a mess kit, half of a mess kit. You couldn't use two parts because they didn't want any noise. So as you walked by these these figures, uh, you would hear plunk, plink, splat. <laughs> and you didn't know what you were getting, and you went over and sat down uh, and started eating. Well, typical uh, typical American meal was, of course, a half, a half a peach was on top. So you worked through the peach, through soggy beans, through watery uh, mashed potatoes to a piece of meat on the bottom. So, but it was good. It was good. So, these are memories. I've always wondered what's the difference between K rations and C rations? Was one better than the other? Well, K rations were basically for breakfast and lunch. They were in a, in a carton that was about the size of a Cracker Jack box. So in it, for breakfast, would be a little tin, a uh, little round tin of maybe uh, some kind of eggs. And there would be a couple of crackers. There would be a little packet of instant coffee and a couple of cigarettes. That was a, that was a breakfast thing. The lunch one would be a little like spam in a, in a little, again, a little can in a Cracker Jack box type, and a, a packet of lemonade, and again, a couple cigarettes, <laughs> a couple crackers. So that's a K rations. C rations were mostly, uh, again, some kind of meat in, in the cans. And so 
the can opener that you had is very interesting to see because it's a little one inch, maybe an inch and a half, and you you wore it on your dog tags because you didn't dare lose it. It was small. And I always, when I used to do classroom interviews in schools, I'd pass it around, and the kids were fascinated because this little thing could open a can, you know, any kind of a can. And I used to say, this thing is better than a Cuisinart. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, they get, they get chuckly. So that's... Uh, you know, and of course it's cold. Whatever you're eating is always cold. Some kind of a hash, a spam, or something. See? So those are the differences. Well, and during this time, you ended up in the battle uh, Christmas Day or the day after. And you were basically in the elements for most of that. You mentioned about sleeping in the barn. But the temperatures were, were they below zero? I mean, it was really cold, wasn't it? It was very cold. Uh, as it was one of the coldest, from what I checked, it was one of the coldest winters that they had back then. And I always feel that the, then what we use is about 10, 15 degrees most of the time throughout that whole battle of the bulge. Now, when you you couldn't dig a foxhole uh, after the first few days because the ground was frozen. The first day that we entered into the Ardennes, we were told, dig in. Well, soldiers had this little uh, shovel. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's uh, it's very small. It hangs on a belt. And uh, I, I had an overcoat. We all had overcoats, no overshoes, at least in our outfit. At any rate, uh, so I took my overcoat off, uh, and uh, a soldier's overcoat was about five feet long, and weighs about 18 pounds. It's a heavy-duty coat. So anyway, I hung it on a cedar branch and tried to dig in. Well, it, <laughs> the ground was so frozen, after an hour, hour and a half, you couldn't get past four or five inches because of this small shovel. any rate, the next thing they said, pack up, we're moving forward. Well, you grab your gear, Put it all on. Put, I reached for my overcoat. It had frozen solid oh because gosh. it was very misty. So and the weather was cold, so it froze. So I said, oh, "Geez!" So I carried that thing. Can you picture me carrying a five-foot-long coat on my shoulder, trudging through some snow? <laughs> when the humor of war, so. Some of the soldiers say, hey, Zobie, who's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> so after about an hour, hour and a half, my arm went numb carrying this thing. And I and other soldiers, not only me, we chucked that coat because it couldn't wear it. It wouldn't thaw. It was so cold, it was not going to thaw. So the rest of the time, we uh, we were in our fatigues. Now, you got to know, going into this, we wore everything we had. We had two sets, uh, regular underwear, 
uh, long johns, uh, shirt, sweater, and uh, and the and the fatigue jacket. And of course, we always had our bedroll blanket, and that's all we had. That's all we had. Now, later, when you you couldn't dig in, it snowed. So how you would do a foxhole is you would bank the snow up about three feet, and you would take cedar branches and put them in the bottom, because two soldiers would occupy a foxhole generally because you needed some body heat to keep a little bit warm. And, of course, as you were in this foxhole, it would some of that would melt from the body heat. That's why you had the cedar branches in the bottom of the foxhole. So that's how we survived through the battle. And we, fortunately, we survived. And oh. most, most of us... <laughs> Wow, that is that is absolutely fascinating to think that you're out in the elements like that. But again, creativity, innovation. We're going to go to break. This is uh, America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. I'm talking to World War II veteran Lou Zobie. We'll be right back for our final segment. Stay tuned. Medical freedom and personal choice are both sacred to comprehensive, patient-first health care. At Roots Medical, our providers honor those rights diligently in every appointment. Located in Denver Tech Center, Roots Medical is a functional primary care clinic with specialties in hormones, thyroid, gut health, detox, and COVID recovery. Establishing care with us is just a text message away, 303-569-6794. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. Roots Medical is a proud member of Colorado Healthcare Providers for Freedom. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. You're passionate for technology and teamwork. Enjoy diversity in your day-to-day work and want a meaningful job. DSoft Technology, Engineering, and Analysis is a leading technology systems provider based in Colorado. They're seeking talented software and technology professionals like you. So apply now to work for one of the fastest growing and long established information technology firms in Southern Colorado. Offering cloud and system engineering services, custom software, and website development using .NET, Drupal, and open source technologies. As a veteran-owned small business, it's a bonus if you've ever served in the military. Your new mission will be building systems for fighting wildland fires on the ground and defeating our enemies in space. The ideal candidate has accountability, integrity, and exceptional customer service across the defense, government, and commercial sectors. For more information about the position, call DSoft Technology today at 719-598-7107. That's 719-598-7107. 
All of Kim's sponsors are an inclusive partnership with Kim and are not affiliated with or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the Kim Munson Show and grow your business, contact Kim at her website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. From the mountains to the prairies to the And welcome back to America's Veteran Stories with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is americasveteranstories.com. And on the line with me is World War II veteran of the Battle of the Bulge. That is Lou Zobi. And, Lou, I've learned so much. We've actually had uh, a great interview before, but uh, I've learned additional things. You mentioned you have a couple more stories that you uh, can share with us. What are those? Well, of course, as I said, we were in Luxembourg when in January 25th, and we were uh, the war uh, the Battle of the Bulge was considered over, but the other part is you got to remember for uh, for us uh, over three weeks, almost a month, uh, we hadn't showered, we hadn't been able to wash, so <laughs> so now the war and, and we're in, as I said in Luxembourg, and the war uh, the Battle of the Bulge is over, so they're going to give us a shower. So they had, as I remember, the way it was set up, they had these uh, trailer trucks. I forget how many of them, but inside the trailer truck was four or five shower heads on each side inside the truck. So you, you could go in there to get a shower. And, of course, there was no hot water. But at any rate, uh, they didn't tell us how long we would be in there. But anyway, we went in, and of course it felt so good to soap up, and because we were pretty crusty after a month of not washing. So, uh, at any rate, uh, in three minutes, in three minutes they shut the water off, and they said, "Get out next." Of course, he <laughs> dried off and all, and then the supply sergeant would throw a set of uh, long johns at you, without regard to size. And, of course, you looked around the room, and if a guy had long sleeves and you had the short sleeve, you swapped. That's how you got a new set, a clean set of underwear. And <laughs> then we had a real hot meal. See, that's the good part of, it, of the end of the bulge. So we thought the bulge, uh, when the bulge was over, I thought we were going to go home. So at any rate, uh, that's... First, the story of the bulge, well, which we just went through. But at any rate, they put us on uh, boxcars, railroad boxcars, about 50 of us in a boxcar, and headed us back to France. And that's the other part of the, it's not part of the bulge, of course. We thought we were going home, but we went back to France in a tent in a tent city that was already set up about 30 miles east of Paris. And then we were told that we would be waiting for replacements because our division had lost almost 25%. That's a lot uh, yes. of people. So, And why we were getting replacements is because we were going to do the last airborne drop into Germany and... Uh, that's another story. It's called Operation Varsity, which was done on March 24th, 1945. 
And did you take a glider in then? That's the glider. That's the, my first time into a, a glider into war. But this time, somebody had decided that a C-47, if they used two gliders instead of one attached to the C-47, we would bring in more men and end this war. Of course, Patton had already crossed the Rhine, and he was pushing through, and we were to drop in behind the enemy. And it was uh, Operation Varsity was the biggest airborne drop in World War II with over 17,000 airborne uh, soldiers. This was in combination with the British 6th Airborne Division. And, uh, and I got to tell you, when, uh, when, a, when we were told in, uh, what they hadn't figured on was the unintended consequences, which were... One, the C-47 was towing an extra extra weight, and even though the gliders were separated by length, they didn't. Uh, they still tangled. It's like flying two kites when the ropes get caught, and some gliders went down that way. And the other thing was they underestimated the size of the landing fields which brought in more gliders, was total chaos. When you, and the, the way it works, the, when the, the C-47 brings in the gliders over enemy territory, uh, they're cut loose at about somewhere between five and 800 square uh, height feet, five to 800 feet high. So the gliders coming in, as it's coming in for a landing, it uh, gets down close to the ground, and the German soldiers were shooting at us with pistols. And the fellow sitting oh next gosh. to me was hit. A, a bullet came up through the glider, right through his thigh. And when we landed, uh, and, uh, that was a rough landing because, uh, again, the drop down and plunk down in the soil, and I got out as fast as I could, and I hollered medic, and somebody said, holler duck. And when they say duck, you hit the ground, because another glider was coming in, I would have been decapitated. But it was total chaos, and finally we got organized, and we got connected with our units, and, and of course we went on and finished the war. So... You can people can look up this stuff. There's YouTube uh, actual footage of Operation Varsity. In fact, uh, there is the best one is if you look it on YouTube. It's called Operation Varsity, the biggest airborne drop in World War II that nobody knows about. <laughs> That's the way you go into it, and you can get that. Well, and how long was that battle? Well, that was from um, March 24th to the end of the war, May uh, May 8th. See? Okay. We were coming across the field uh, on Easter Sunday uh, along the flatlands, which were, you know, soggy. 
we were we were heading towards Munster, the city of Munster, to uh, take that back from the Germans. When I heard of mortar shell coming, and it was and uh, every soldier knows that you can hear a mortar shell, it whistles, and as the whistle gets louder, you know it's getting close. So what you do is you hit the ground and hope that, uh, you know, so I hear thump. When you hear thump, that means that the mortar shell has hit right near you. And I waited for the explosion, and it didn't explode. I lifted up my helmet to look, and it's eight inches in front of my nose. Oh, my gosh. a 75-millimeter mortar shell stuck in the ground. Wow. How lucky oh can God. you get? When I tell my stories, I say, I'm the luckiest soldier in World War II. <laughs> oh, that is for sure. And, Lou, we are out of time. Thank you so much for this interview. Uh, this is Lou Zobie, a World War II uh, veteran. Really do appreciate it.